Atomic Blonde is a high-minded film about the barriers that masculinity erected in the Cold War in our geopolitical scene and how women can overcome them through using their strength and guile. It is an intensely feminist film that also happens to prominently feature a corkscrew being driven into a man's eyeball at approximately 54 miles an hour. <laughs> and that's the Werner Herzog view of a fantastic look back at this year's momentous anniversary. We're podcasting this at almost the exact moment of the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. You're listening to Radio Free Berlin 30 Woo! years later, baby. Uh-oh, uh-oh, The commissars in town, uh-oh. I was going to go with the politics for dancing. Well, that's a British song. There was actually a lot of German pop in the 80s music. The soundtrack to this is fantastic. This is my wheelhouse. And this is Bentley. And I'm Samuel. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast. So, we just watched Atomic Blonde. Which came out in 2017. Very recent. Charlize Theron has been trying to get this project off the ground for years. It's adapted from a graphic novel printed by Oni Press called The Coldest City. And... And she's basically playing Jamie Bond. Yeah. It's directed by the same guy who directed John Wick. I mean, this is a vehicle for Charlize. This is a story she's wanted to tell. This is a story that she's uniquely suited to tell. Yeah. Uh, at her age, with her level of, of badassery. You would call it a vanity project, but is it vain when you're right? Like, <laughs> I, 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 I hesitate to, to kind of knock the, 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 it's a passion project. There's vanity projects when we don't like something because it's negative. And then there's passion projects when we like something and it's positive. This is a passion project for Charlize and it shows. Every fame of, of this film is built to drive the story forward. There's not a lot of fat on this stake. It's it's very lean. There's a lot of great action sequences, but they don't really overstay their welcome. They are exactly as long as they need to be. But, but there's I, also a lot going on here. I mean, we're in kind of a, a vein of Samuel doing his Werner Herzog. Yes. Because we're watching The Mandalorian right now, and Samuel's very good at his voices, and I egg him on all the time. It is an intensely political film underneath the violence. It is. It's all about, you know, who can you believe? There's great stuff in this movie about uh, eye contact, and, you know, that's how you can really watch a great actor at work. And at this point in her career, Charlize is a great actor, She's done serious drama. She's done action stuff. We love the fact that she carried Fury Road. We've talked about Fury Road a lot. And so I did not begrudge her at all making this for herself. And yet, with all the promo that I saw when this came out in 2017, it didn't do very well. Yeah. Well, it was dumped in like January or February or something. They sent it to die. Yeah, I don't know why, because um, it's really good. I just hadn't made time to see it. I really regret that now. I just was pretty busy there in late 2017, and I just never got around to it. So it's been on demand for a little while, uh, but we have people in our family who absolutely love it. I think they're watching it like once a month at this point. Yeah. And it's, it's, I've been emphasizing the action in my description of it, but there's really great character work. The whole thing revolves around trust. Who do you trust? Who do you give your trust 
two, how far do you let your guard down? Uh, what is innocence? Um, and of course, that's pretty standard for spy movies and novels. But to set it in the very week that the Berlin Wall falls is yeah. a fantastic choice. Yeah, there's there's an urgency that the real world political events lend the fictional story. And they use a bunch of news broadcasts from the time. <laughs> Including uh, an MTV clip featuring Kurt Loder. Sampling. <laughs> is it art or just musical theft? <laughs> Art, you dickhead. Um, as much art as all of the great 80s pop music. And so, you know, the truth about 1989 was uh, we were first getting the strains of Nirvana and Janet Jackson was all over the radio. So we had actually passed out of kind of that techno pop era uh, when Madonna first breaks big and you've got the Thompson twins and you've got things like 99 Luftballons. That comes out at least five years before this movie takes place. But the soundtrack is relentlessly Euro-pop 80s, and I loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's in your face. They really play uh, the greatest hits. There are a lot of scenes in clubs. A lot of scenes in clubs. Everything's lit with neon. The politics of dancing. Yeah, they also play with color immensely in this film. I knew this was something special as soon as we hit the second scene where Charlize's entire room, where she is literally nursing her wounds, she's soaking in this ice bath, she's drinking vodka, and everything's blue. The fog outside is blue. Big Ben is blue. And she gets up, and she lights a photograph on fire, and it's bright, vivid orange. And I was like, okay. Someone knows what they're doing. Oh, yeah. The cinematography on this is fantastic. Oh, my God. There's so many great camera twists and turns, literally just corkscrewing all around. It's a visual feast. We've been talking about Charlize, but there's also a lot of other names we should check in here. You've got James McAvoy, Professor X himself, coming in as supposedly her Berlin contact. But he's a lot more interesting than that. He's plenty sleazy. He's literally playing both sides of the wall. Yeah, he he's is. been in Berlin for 10 years. He's seen some things. Uh, and of course, you're just watching him every chance you get because you can tell that you can't trust him. Yeah, uh, it's got John Goodman uh, as kind of the American uh, guy who's there. The whole movie is told in flashback. Charlize Theron is relating her story to uh, kind of her, her direct superiors in the military complex. Right, and uh, we definitely shouldn't spoil it. No, no, of course um, not. But, but that's the setup of the film. You see that in the yeah. second scene as yeah, she's yeah, getting yeah. interviewed. And then the other person who's interrogating her is Toby Jones. Um, who Has we, his own German accent in another film. He's very distinct from... Oh, I can't do it. It just slides right back into Warner Herzog. I can't <laughs> do it. Problem is I get a good impression going and then all these other impressions morph into that one. Right. I can't keep them distinct. Anyway, you would recognize Toby because he's the evil scientist in the first Captain America movie. And um, he also played, uh, as is natural, the first moment you see his photograph, he's played Truman Capote. He's done a lot of interesting character actor things. This movie also features a pre-killer clown, Bill Sasgard, oh. um, who would obviously go on to play Pennywise the Clown in It and will probably... Yeah. Be typecast as that for the rest of his life. Poor guy. But he in this is kind of like this um, street urchin. He's kind of a Dickensian character yeah, who's yeah. marshalling the youth on the east side of the wall. Which is what I really loved about this movie. So I love James Bond movies. And since this is a female James Bond, I love that. 
Uh, I love movies that are set in a historical moment. And I'd like to take a moment to say, uh, this reminded me in its goals of a movie that Clooney did uh, some years ago called The Good German that also uh, bombed. And the two movies are trying to do the same kind of thing. Clooney's is set right after the end of World War II when all of these different groups, the Russians, the Brits, the, the Americans, are trying to figure out who's in charge. And, you know, the lines are very fluid and you don't know who you can trust, and people have a background. And, you know, it's got a very top-line cast. It's got great cinematography. It's filmed in black and white. Clooney is clearly trying to do something on par with Casablanca. And I've watched that thing like three times, and I just can't like it. I can't recommend mm. it. The script isn't very good. And Clooney is kind of an empty character at the middle of all this swirling, noir, detective stuff, like... At the end of the movie, you realize he's been a patsy. He hasn't figured it out. The whole thing has swirled around him without him understanding what's going on. And ultimately, that's not that interesting. Mm. That doesn't happen in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> so we also should give a shout out to uh, Sofia uh, Botella. I, I really hope I didn't mispronounce her name, but I probably did. You guys might know her from, she was in Star Trek Beyond as Jayla. She was in Kingsman, The Secret Service as Gazelle. Uh, she was in that uh, Tom Cruise reboot of The Mummy as The Mummy. And in here she plays a really fantastic kind of... She, she's kind of the... This, of If we're seeing this through the frame of a noir story, she's not the femme fatale. She's kind of the... Almost like the, the one innocent drawn up. Yes, she's she the blondie is. drawn up into the detective story. That's exactly what she um, is. And she does, she does some great work with this role. And she wears leg warmers. And what more do you want? Um, <laughs> so when you do this kind of a movie, so you know something like a James Bond film or that good German movie that I was talking about with Clooney, they're very male-centric. Yeah. So when you're going to flip that around and have a female at the center... And it's still going to be kind of a violent spy, James Bondian thing, action thing. You have to make it believable that somebody who weighs half of what these Russian goons weigh can do battle with them. And every step of the way in the action of this movie and the way they had uh, drawn the characters and the things that they use. You know, her character, the French spy, and Charlize's character, the British spy, both had believable action scenes where, you know, they took some punches, they gave some punches, they used their environment, they used tools at hand. It was all very believable, very human, very gritty. Yes. Uh, you know, Charlize gets tossed around by some of these Russian goons. You know, she's not performing superwoman feats of strength. She's always using her agility. She's always using her environment. There, uh, This is probably the best non-Jackie Chan movie for prop weaponry fighting. I am seeing... <laughs> hey, she so, used a ladder. She used a she ladder. She used a ladder she in like, this one. She also used a hot plate, which I thought was really, really, uh, you know, almost uncalled for. Like, sure, Wait these guys minute. are trying to kill you, but the hot plate is a little too far. Well, was that too domestic? I mean, was, does that, no, no, does no. that ruin She's, the feminist narrative? No, no. She, no. Oh, okay. Uh, if, if, if anything, my only complaint was the guy still had all his teeth when you saw that shot of him on the floor. I'm like, <laughs> right. no, he does not. No, he doesn't have his teeth. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's... So let's talk about the feminism. Yeah, that's so what I'm trying to steer us towards. It's it's there's a great moment in this film where you have again this is not a spoiler this is the setup of the film. 
Charlize is the only woman in this interrogation room being right. briefed on the mission which has happened in flashback, yep. which is the subject of the film. Yeah. And the movie never calls attention to it. The movie doesn't beat you over the head with it, but it's like one of the men refers to himself as her superior, referring to his rank. Yeah. And she just snorts and laughs yeah, and she just spits she, the word back at him. Yeah, she laughs My at him. My superior. Like, right, right. And you get exactly what the <laughs> film is saying there. Like, yeah. it's... And what I love is that she's also, like... She's like super messed up. This is a woman who's clearly burying PTSD over mountain under mountains of alcohol. She is uh, all twisted around from the Cold War, and there is so much left unsaid within the body of the film about the gender politics of this. But I think that's what makes those themes all the stronger when you look for them. It's difficult for me to articulate because again, it's so between the lines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, again, I think that's what lends it. It's it's strength. People never go like, people never say like, oh, you're just a girl. Like, what are you going to do to me? Like, no one ever calls attention to her gender, but it shapes every single fight scene. It shapes mm-hmm. every single interaction. Mm-hmm. It is what we would call a microaggression. Right. No one ever right. says, oh, you're just a chick. You can never do this. Right. You know, it's left unsaid. It's in between the lines. Mm-hmm. James McAvoy's character really does not respect her for a long time stretch of this movie right that's right um really thinks she's stupid really is trying to just get one over her and she's just an annoyance he doesn't even you know pick her up at the airport you know like he has no no regard for her life at all Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she proves herself competent without it being framed as a within the narrative you need to prove yourself to me well and unlike say a buddy cop movie where you've got two people chained together and one has to prove him or herself in this one like she distances herself from him immediately she like goes to her own hotel yeah sets up her own base like this is not a buddy cop movie yeah it is he's had his operation built over 10 years she comes in uh in a very tense historical moment and you know he's got his setup going and he is concerned about what she's going to do to it but there's none of that false buddy cop, hey, we're chained at the wrist thing. She's just like, okay, you don't respect me. You're not going to help me. I don't trust you. I'm doing my thing over here. Yeah. So that makes the plot even more fascinating. Yeah. So the feminism isn't on the surface either. Yeah. Right? They're just done as characters, which is, I think, the truest form of equality in feminism, that we don't have to have it overt we want it to be just a part of the story yeah there's some there's some male gazy stuff in here uh, if you've studied that that sort of thing uh, you can definitely tell it's a male director who's who's looking to to titillate in certain places but she's an executive producer on this there's no shot in this movie that she doesn't want to do that's certainly true uh charlize has a, she's not an executive she's producer producer well, i thought she was executive producer. no she right. i mean this is her this is her baby um yeah. you know she definitely there's there's definitely no question that yeah she she probably approved all this so yep. you know it's it's a very very empowering message i think it's a kick-ass film and and it it's it's like it just happens to be you know it's not a message movie it's a message the message is Charlize theron kicks ass and we're tired of her not having won an oscar like that's <laughs> that's a good message that's my message my message is if i have to wait until she's 80 to get her oscar then you are 
you know, and my message is, why did I have to wait until 2017 to get a car chase to the song I Ran by Flock of Seagulls? Oh, God. It's a natural, people. Come on. So good. Why did we have to wait for that? How long did we have to wait? (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of good fight scenes set to music in this, and there's some real brutality to this. I mean, there's some real, they're really, you know, again, so, so this is what, what a Again, lot of, corkscrew people. A lot corkscrew. of people make this mistake of like thinking that every movie has to follow our real-world laws of physics. My thing is always, does the movie follow its own internal laws of physics? Do they stay consistent within their world of physics? Well, both of these things are true in this movie, I think. Yes, I mean... There's, there's an extended fight scene where you know she's stumbling. You know The human body can only take so much, and you can see that she's exhausted at yeah, the yeah. end of this very extended fight scene. Yeah, yeah. But there is such a kinetic force behind each punch. Uh, there is such an impact to uh, even a set of car keys. But there are um, also missed punches, and I think that's really important. Yeah. that's real world. Yeah. Sometimes they miss her. Sometimes she misses them. Yeah. It's just an incredible stunt team and a really, really, really well-orchestrated series of fights. And again, it follows that rule of you only have a fight scene to tell you more about the characters. Mm-hmm. Every single one of these mm-hmm. fight scenes, you learn something about the characters involved. Maybe mm-hmm. not every character, mm-hmm. but you learn something about each character. Yeah. And that is really vital. I think even sometimes the best movies will screw that up. You know, Some movies will just you know, have a fight scene and it's there to be a fight scene and you don't learn anything. Yeah. But... Here's the f- best thing I can say about the fight scenes, and this uh, is a mea culpa for me, that this movie was marketed so hard, I think I saw the same trailer for it. They think they only made one trailer, and I must have seen it a dozen times. And, you know, I got a little tired of it, and maybe that's one reason why I decided not to spend first-run money on it. So shame on me uh, for reacting negatively to the marketing. But with all of that in my head, now that I finally sat down to watch it tonight, you know what? There was still plenty of great action. It was still interesting. The stuff that I remembered from the trailer, you know, still was interesting when I saw it tonight in context. You know, it's really well put together. Mm. Apparently they wanted Bowie to play a part in the film, uh, and then he turned it down just before his death. So, missed out, Bowie. You missed out. But it does end with Under Pressure... By Queen and Bowie. And it's and a beautiful And it starts remake. with putting out fires with gasoline. Well, his remake of a song that was a deep track on his big commercial hit, Let's Dance. Yeah. Right? His album in the early 80s where he kind of schools all these Brit technopunk people who are trying to be Bowie, right? This thing is rolling for a couple of years, post-punk, pop music, and then Bowie swoops in... You know, with his album that features uh, China Girl and Let's Dance. And uh, and deep in that album is this song. Yeah. You know, the movie also intertwines itself with film itself at one point. Uh, they, they go to see a um, 1979 Soviet-made film, Stalker, which is, you know, kind of apropos for this entire environment. Sure, sure. And it's funny to see them fighting in front of the screen and seeing the light play across their forms and the fight scene kind of ends when Charlize Theron gets thrown. Yeah, breaks the three-fifths rule of the camera on the yeah. flat plane yeah, literally. and goes through 
and then they flip the camera and she's going towards you again. Yeah. So yeah, that was a lot nice. of really great cinematography <laughs> in this movie. I, there's a whole course you could teach just with this film. And I liked that scene because that whole chase goes through a section of East Berlin that I actually got to visit when I was able to go there with some of my good college friends uh, just after the fall of the wall, right? So the, the wall comes down in November and December of 1989, and I'm there in maybe April of 1990 and uh you know the borders open and boy east berlin was almost empty it was amazing how empty it was so you could just wander around uh and i really did appreciate how this movie had the young people of the time i.e my generation right the the 20 somethings in 1989 uh were a factor in this movie yeah they they were important plot points and characters so I really appreciated that because the politics weren't just a backdrop and they weren't just cute and the soundtrack wasn't just fun nostalgia. It all fit the story. Yeah. Well, what's funny is that apparently every single one of the songs re- featured in the soundtrack was released in 1983 or earlier. Yeah. Um, They're not 1989 songs, yeah. which is hilarious. Uh, according to the trivia page on IMDb, what was really actually hip and trendy and what was playing in Germany at the time was Detroit techno and early other... Early house music. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was. So. Well, that's what I'm telling you. It was all so house music uh, was a big part of I think boosting Janet Jackson and all the techno drum stuff. I mean, God, that stuff was just relentless in 1988 and 1989. And in in a way, that's what Nirvana was reacting against. Yeah. Right. We had lost almost all live musicianship out of music. You don't like drum machines, sir. <laughs> so, but that's okay because they, you know. They're setting so, a feel. They're setting a tone. They're setting a they're, feel. It's not um, about literal. It's not about literal physics. It's not about literal 80s. It's about the broad strokes and, and evoking that feel and that tone. And in any movie or any art form, you can do that and you can play with you know the exact science and the exact years of the music uh, as long as you don't pull the taffy too much and break that, that believability. Yeah. And we've complained when about they, plenty of movies that break, you know, that go too far. Yeah, but when they played London not. Calling, I thought that was the only miss on the soundtrack. Because that's 1979. 79, that's a full yeah. 10 years beforehand. Yeah. And no matter what Rolling Stone says, London Calling is not the best album of the 1980s. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're reaching the end of our own decade here, so we've been looking at these music lists, trying to round things up, and whoosh. Always difficult, but which will be fun. You know, we really should do some of that stuff too. You know, we've been. But doing I look a back lot of... on the previous decade is just us talking about how much we love Prince records. <laughs> no one <laughs> okay. else. No, no, no. Well, but so we should actually do some study and some work because I think a lot of our recent podcasts have been about these anniversary yeah uh, movies and and uh, there have been big ones, right? I mean, nineteen eighty nine was a really big year uh, in world history and in art. Uh, and then we've hit some things on their 25th anniversary. You know, we've hit Pulp Fiction. Uh, and then you look at stuff that's 20 years old. But we really should do some work. It's funny how all of the current political stuff is sort of drowning out for now those end-of-the-decade lists. I haven't seen any of them so far. Because yeah, we're all consumed by what's right in front of our nose. Yeah. Well, you got to go looking for them in some cases. But getting back to Atomic Blonde... Something else that, that, that really struck me about this film is just how well they are able to get uh, the props right. 
There's I like there was a prop in this film that I was there were some Apple computers. My father, I thought it was inaccurate, and we looked it up, and it was accurate. I mean, they did a lot of research. There's really not a lot of seams on this one. It it feels very natural. And one of the East German, you know, anti-communist kids, one of the Gen Xers, is playing Tetris oh, on his awesome. computer. <laughs> That's good stuff. What more do you want? What more do you want? Um, there's breakdancing in the film. That's true. There's a skateboard. That's there's true. a skateboard beating a breakdancer in this film. <laughs> uh, there's a giant boombox. Yeah, know, it's, that's it's, good too. They're hitting these big... And so many BMWs. Oh my so God. Many. So many BMWs. Oh yes. Oh yes. It's just a really well-made movie. It, it reaches a really beautiful emotional crescendo. Sometimes it can be difficult in modern films, I've always found, to figure out where the end of the second act is. Because mm. obviously you have you have like a big climax, and then sometimes maybe there'll be a second fight scene right at the end, and then you'll have almost no falling action. But in this, you really there's a really beautiful kind of succinct moment that even features a monologue of a character staring right at the film, like right at you, the audience, almost breaking the fourth wall. I almost didn't like that. That that bothered me at the time, and then I let it resolve the way they wanted it to. But it just felt so false compared to how authentic the rest of the movie had been already. I think that character is so nuts that he gets a pass. <laughs> okay. I think All right. it didn't take me out of it because okay. it, it was with the character who it was. If it had been with, say, Charlize's character, no, I don't buy All that. Right. Well, but it, it was, was with who it was. It was close. Uh, it was at this very <laughs> surreal moment where there's fireworks going off. It's yeah, that's true. It's really true. important moment historically. And the other thing is, I would also take issue with it if it served up the message of the film on a silver platter. Right. But it's not. It's a monologue that lasts for two scenes that ends in a shrug of, oh, people died. <laughs> right. You know, it's right. it's... The movie does a great job of answering its own questions, but not answering your questions. Well, here's what's really interesting, you know. So it's, and I can't talk more about that without spoilers. No, I understand. So, so I want to loop this back to the bigger question. So it's set at the fall of the wall, which you know, on its face is okay. That's good news. There's really not a lot of debate about that. Okay, <laughs> you know, people found freedom after decades of oppression by a totalitarian government. That's good news. It's still good news thirty years later, and in this movie, it's so tight on the spy game that at the end, when several of the characters are like, "Oh, what is truth? And who's a good guy? And who's a bad guy?" That was my only other little quibble with the movie because, you know, the fireworks are literally going off and people are dancing on the wall. And you're like, there are good guys. They're the people who made this happen. Yeah. And you do get enough after the movie concludes that, like, on your drive home or when you turn off Netflix or whatever, you can then realize, oh, yes, there are good guys who helped to make this happen. But but the characters themselves never really say that to each other. They're, they're so soaked in the whole, oh, you know, it's all relative. But I think that makes sense for them. They've been in the... I, I think guess, I think immediately of the Alan Arkin line from um, Argo, where he talks about being in the movie business for too long. He's like, 
It's like coal mining. You get down there long enough, you come back with enough soot on you, it never washes off. Like, he, these yeah. people are soaked in blood. To yeah. them, all they see is red. Like, they, they... I suppose. I think that's fine. I think... The movie... And I mean, this is a comment. The movie trusts the audience immensely. The okay. movie says, look, we're going to give you this narrative from their point of view, but we trust that you are smart enough to A, follow the very twisty-turny plot we have here, B, not be handed the easiest answers at the end, and yep. C, understand that these people's perspectives are heavily messed with because they've been fighting the Cold War for... Decades. As long as they've been, you know, yeah. spies. Well, um, so I would love for that to be true. Uh, I look forward to watching the movie again, which is what it, we do with good movies. The other thing is, it's also colored by modern filmmakers making a movie about the Cold War, and we are more cynical now. And To our detriment. Yeah. And I'm not saying you're you're wrong about there being good guys and, and bad guys and freedom and injustice, but from the 2017 perspective, they might be looking back and saying, okay, yeah, the wall falls, and then... You know, Putin comes into power. Like it's, ten years later. Yeah. yeah. So, I I got you. But if I'm going I'm on to the very be, defensive of this film. Well, I understand. But for someone who lived through it, I got to say that if you give the filmmakers credit the way you have, that means that the characters on the screen who are almost oblivious to the good historical thing happening right over their shoulders then they're really deeply flawed, poisoned people. They yeah! Are, they're really... Yes! <laughs> they're, also, yes. They're really messed up. And and your point was... <laughs> what I really want is a, is an Archon episode where Charlize Theron guest stars as this character. Oh, that That's what I really beautiful. want. Beautiful. Why do you have all the best ideas? <laughs> What's well, not going to happen? Samuel because... has the best ideas. <laughs> She'd be too competent. The episode would be over in five minutes. Yeah, she'd kick Archer's ass. Yeah, no, there'd be no. Like, oh, you Jesus! You broke my nose. Like it's it's there's. I, I wanted to make the. We were all engrossed in the film, and when my father and I aren't riffing on a film, that either means we super duper hate it or we're super engrossed. So we were totally engrossed in this, but yeah. there was one riff that I wanted to make where Charlize gets punched a bunch and she's crawling on the ground and blood's coming out of her mouth and she's like holding her ribs together. I just wanted to quote Ben Affleck and go, oh, something's bleeding. <laughs> something's bleeding. <laughs> Which would have made me laugh. Oh, <laughs> my Lord. Well, All ladies right. and gentlemen, go see Atomic Blonde. I don't know if it's in the canon. This is not really a typical podcast for us, but it's an excellent reflection of where we are 30 years later viewing... The fall of the Berlin Wall, the well, end of the Cold War. Yeah, I, I. The wanted, end of history. They called it. They the called time. it the end of history, which uh, that's pretty interesting. So yeah, I thought we could do this for the podcast as a thirty year of a really momentous thing, uh, and it's kind of interesting that there hasn't been a lot of storytelling about it. Join not, us not next really. next week when we go over the singularity. <laughs> okay. All right. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying, there's a lot of cultural, it's uh, historical predictions that didn't quite shake out the way we wanted them. Yeah. But no, the end of history, man. Uh, and if it ends with Charlize walking away in the foggy, moonlit morning of a London airport, then yeah, I'm good I, with that. I'm good with that being the end of history. <laughs> if that's our mark in the world, if the aliens just see Atomic Blonde, I. That's all right. That's good by okay. me. Good by me. You know, <laughs> Charlize has got to survive all this. You know, well, we become the irradiated hellhole that we're destined to be. Let's watch Fury Road again. Yeah.
Or as I call it, the Wasteland Survival Guide. Now we're getting sidetracked. All right, ladies and gentlemen, go see Atomic Blonde. It's awesome. I'm Samuel. I'm Bentley. And this has been the Review Podcast. Podcast. Comrade.